You're listening to episode number six of the Paleo NP podcast. Welcome to the Paleo NP podcast. I'm Martha, a family nurse practitioner and creator of MarthaFlorence.com. I live in Anchorage, Alaska with my boyfriend and fur children. I'm here to share my take on integrative health, nutrition, and fitness, answer your questions, and talk with health and wellness experts. You can submit your questions at MarthaFlorence.com. Enjoy this week's episode. Remember that the materials and content within this podcast are intended as general information only and are not to be considered a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Hey friends, I'm excited to be back here with another episode of the Paleo NP podcast. Before I get into the meat of this week's episode, I want to tell you about something that I'm really loving this week. So a while back, I heard a podcast and honestly, I can't remember which one, but I can tell you that I was riding my bike down the bike path while I was listening to it. Anyway, it was an interview with a gentleman named Dr. Cowan who had a passion for vegetables. And if I can figure out what podcast it is, I will definitely link to it. But the point of this is that he makes vegetable powders. And I've had a few of them for a while, but I've only really recently discovered how great they are. So there's tons of different options. Um, I've got one called the Threefold Blend, which I think is chard, kale, beets, leeks, zucchinis, and peppers. Um, and the idea is that none of us get enough vegetables in our day. So, I mean, I try really hard and I probably get about five servings, but there was a study done that showed that you don't really get the benefits of vegetables until you hit about eight servings per day. So enter vegetable powders. Depending on the flavor profile, you can literally stick them in everything. I've also got the beet powder, which I put in my smoothies anytime that I make them. Um, and the threefold blend is something that I just sprinkle on meat or other veggies. It gives it a little bit of flavor um, and it gives you a few extra servings of your daily veggies. So this is only even coming up because I made nachos for dinner a few nights ago and I was trying to figure out how to get some vegetables in them. And I ended up just sprinkling a couple of tablespoons of the veggie powder into the meat while it was cooking. It was like instant veggie magic. Suddenly my veggie free meal turned into a meal with tons of veggies. Also, do not let this be a substitute for eating actual vegetables. It's really just a great option for maybe kids who might not love eating them or for anyone who's trying to fit a few more servings in. You've still got to eat your actual veggies though. I will put a link in the show notes so that you can check out the website because they've got a lot of really great stuff on there. So this week I wanted to talk about metabolic syndrome, what it is and why you should even care about it. Also how it relates to paleo because it definitely does. And I want to disclaim here that biochemistry is not my forte, so I'm going to do my best to explain it in clear terms, but fair warning, we're going to get kind of nerdy with science in this episode. So what is metabolic syndrome? It's a combination of several risk factors, and in order to be diagnosed with metabolic syndrome, you need to have three or more of the following. Elevated fasting blood sugar, elevated triglycerides, low HDL cholesterol, which is your good cholesterol, high blood pressure, and central obesity, which means that you carry a lot of extra weight around your waist. The reason that I wanted to talk about this is because most people probably haven't heard of it, and at least 40% of the patients that I saw in clinic had this condition. Something that's called insulin resistance is also closely related with metabolic syndrome and is thought to be the underlying mechanism of metabolic syndrome. So insulin resistance is when your cells are not very sensitive to insulin. So it takes more insulin to get the glucose, which is the sugar, out of your blood and into your cells. And that's what insulin does. 
insulin resistance can be caused by inflammation and insulin resistance leads to metabolic syndrome. The underlying pathology of metabolic syndrome involves a complex cascade of events that occur within your cells. Insulin is a hormone whose action is actually needed for tissue development, growth, and maintaining glucose balance in your body. Insulin also has an effect on the breakdown of lipids, which are fats, by increasing the amount of fat that is made in your liver and in your adipose tissue, which is your fat tissue. Insulin resistance means that your tissues are less responsive to appropriate levels of insulin in your blood. Insulin resistance in your muscles causes decreased ability to get glucose out of your bloodstream as well as increased production of glucose. So this happens because your muscle cells need glucose, but the cells can't get it because they are resistant to the action of insulin. So they send out a signal that says, hey, we need more glucose. One of the main features of metabolic syndrome is the impaired secretion of insulin by cells in your pancreas. So these are called pancreatic beta cells, and this leads to high blood sugar because you're not able to secrete enough insulin. The timing of your insulin response also gets knocked out of whack because you have your muscle cells saying they need more glucose, and then your pancreas can't secrete the insulin your body needs to get the glucose into the cells. So it becomes this ugly cycle. In the livers of healthy people, so people who do not have insulin resistance or metabolic syndrome, insulin inhibits the production and release of glucose by preventing gluconeogenesis and glycogenolysis. Gluconeogenesis is the way that you produce glucose from non-carbohydrate sources, and glycogenolysis is the opposite. So that's the breakdown of glycogen to glucose. The main target of the action of insulin is skeletal muscle. Defects in the synthesis of glycogen is caused by defects in the glucose within the muscle. I guess I should probably mention that glycogen is the way that your body stores glucose for later, and it's generally stored in the liver. So there's also a glucose transporter that carries glucose into the cells. Something like exercise or insulin tells this transporter that it's time to move some glucose into the cells because the muscle cells need it. So it's the glucose is hanging out in your blood, Um, and it needs to get into your muscles where they can use it for energy. Previous definitions of insulin resistance define the condition in terms of the negative effects on the body. So high blood sugar, which is also called hyperglycemia, following a meal that was high in carbohydrates. Eventually, the cells in the pancreas become unable to produce enough insulin to maintain normal blood glucose levels because they're overworked by the constant influx of these high carbohydrate meals. This is the defining characteristic of the the transition from insulin resistance to type 2 diabetes. But it's important to note that insulin resistance actually occurs at a cellular level, level, as we just talked about, despite the dysfunction of the pancreatic beta cells. Remember, those are the cells in your pancreas that produce insulin. Studies have also shown that there are abnormalities in fatty acid metabolism present when you have insulin resistance. These abnormalities cause a buildup of fat in the muscle tissue, liver, and other organs. So lipotoxicity, which is a condition that develops when fat builds up in places other than adipose tissue. So lipotoxicity in the presence of elevated levels of free fatty acids in the blood is actually considered one of the major signs of insulin resistance. Chronic inflammation has also been linked to insulin resistance. The chemical messengers of inflammation, which are called cytokines, have been associated with many features of metabolic syndrome. 
So these cytokines cause insulin resistance by causing some of the molecules that insulin acts on to undergo a chemical process called phosphorylation. Have I lost you yet? I told you there was going to be a lot of nerdy science going on here. Bear with me because I'm going to bring this all together in just a minute. So because of what I just talked about with inflammation, insulin resistance, mostly in skeletal muscle, shows up as a decrease in the creation of glycogen as stimulated by insulin because of decreased glucose transport. Once this happens, lipids start to accumulate in the cells of the liver and the pancreas, which causes oxidative stress and changes in the metabolism of cells. Environmental toxins also play a role in insulin resistance and type 2 diabetes. So a substance called BPA, which you might have heard of, is found in many plastics, and it has been closely linked to insulin resistance and type 2 diabetes. In 2012, it was estimated that more than 90% of U.S. residents had detectable levels of BPA in their urine. I would guess that this number has gone down a bit, maybe, given all the awareness around BPA and the harm that it causes, but that may be only in the uh, sphere of people that I surround myself with and the general population might not actually be aware of those harms, so it's hard to say. Um, but that wasn't all that long ago that more than 90% of U.S. residents had detectable levels of BPA in their urine. BPA also appears to have an effect on the metabolism of glucose by several pathways. One of those pathways is insulin resistance. The dysfunction of pancreatic beta cells remember that those are the cells in your pancreas that produce insulin, as well as um, with inflammation and oxidative stress. So air and traffic pollution have also been linked to insulin resistance and increased risk of death, likely from type 2 diabetes. So there's something called persistent organic pollutants, which are called POPs, and they may also play a role in metabolic syndrome. So POPs are compounds that don't dissolve well in water, but they do dissolve, dissolve well in lipids, which are fat, and they persist in the environment, making them increase up the food chain. So something eats something else that has a lot of POPs in it, and then that animal ends up with its own high concentration of POPs and so on. So this is an effect that is magnified as it goes up the food chain. Pesticides and solvents are the main sources of POPs. And because they are so easily absorbed into fat, they don't degrade easily or so break down, and they can remain in the host for up to 10 years. In 2002, higher concentrations of POPs, mainly in the form of pesticides and herbicides, were associated with a higher rate of type 2 diabetes. And what I think is the most interesting piece of this is that obesity was not found to be a risk factor for type 2 diabetes in people who had no detectable levels of POPs in their system. One article even implied that virtually all of the risk of diabetes as it's related to obesity is attributed to these POPs. So to me, that's completely mind-blowing. And this actually highlights for me one of the major issues I have with our medical system, which I'm not going to get into too in-depth right now. But as a healthcare provider, I was taught essentially that obesity is one of the main risk factors for type 2 diabetes. And then in order to prevent type 2 diabetes, you need to reduce body weight. But the study I just mentioned implied that the obesity that causes type 2 diabetes is actually caused by exposure to pesticides. I would guess that a majority of medical practitioners don't know that, but it's almost like saying for these people, developing type 2 diabetes has nothing to do with anything that they could control. Sure, they could control their exposure to POPs, but my guess is that at the time that they were being exposed to them, we didn't know that this was the case. 
Now, I have no idea if in this case, reducing body weight still reduces the risk of type 2 diabetes. My guess is that it does, but it just kind of blows my mind that we look at treating all of these things without ever really understanding what the root cause is. So before I move on, I just want to recap the really high level stuff here. Insulin resistance leads to metabolic syndrome, which eventually leads to type 2 diabetes. I know you're asking why I couldn't just have led with that and skipped all of the gory details, but I actually think those are really important that you understand those too. One other thing that I want to mention before moving on, don't worry, we're totally out of the nerdy science woods for now, is how this gets to be such a problem. If we know what the criteria for metabolic syndrome is, why is it such a big issue? Why aren't we just treating it? Well, the issue lies in the fact that by the time metabolic syndrome is diagnosed, it's become a bigger issue. So it's already turned into prediabetes or diabetes. Many of the early signs often get labeled as something else. So common early signs of insulin resistance are low blood sugar, mood swings triggered by big swings in your blood sugar, fatigue, sugar and carb cravings, brain fog, weight gain, anxiety, and other mood issues. It's also really important to note that the presence of these symptoms does not always indicate insulin resistance, which is why it gets missed so many times. The other issue is that most healthcare providers are not testing the right things. We are trained to test a person's fasting blood glucose. So what is their blood sugar at least eight hours after their last meal? And the guidelines that a majority of providers follow say that anything under 110 is really no big deal. So once you get into the 110 range and above, we start to pay closer attention to it and maybe monitor it more frequently, and we call you pre-diabetic. And then once you hit 126, you officially get a diagnosis of diabetes and get put on medication. However, the scary part of this system is that your blood sugar is actually the last thing in this cascade to increase. So for a lot of people, a fasting blood sugar test actually catches things too late. Remember how we talked about all that sciencey stuff? Well, your insulin is actually the first thing that gets wacky. So remember that your muscle cells become resistant to insulin and tell your body that it needs to release more insulin so that you can get the sugar out of your blood and into your muscle cells. So abnormally high insulin is actually an earlier sign of diabetes and it may be able to be detected decades sooner. Yes, I said decades. The gold standard for diagnosis of insulin resistance and really it should probably become the standard for diabetes as well, is the two-hour glucose tolerance test. This test can detect both high insulin levels and high blood sugar levels, but it's not a test that gets ordered very frequently. If you've ever had a baby, you've probably had a similar test, although it was probably a one-hour or a three-hour test to determine if you had gestational diabetes. A common trend for people is to have normal blood sugar but high levels of insulin because your cells are resistant to the insulin, so it takes more insulin to maintain a normal blood sugar, but yet you don't have a diagnosis of prediabetes because your blood sugar is normal. It's funny to me that insulin resistance contributes to most chronic disease in the United States, but almost 90% of people who have this condition have not, be, have not been diagnosed. And it's really as simple as ordering one test. I get the problem. Nobody wants to sit around for two hours to find out if they have insulin resistance, but if you look at it as, would you rather spend a couple of hours getting this test done or spend the rest of your life with a chronic and somewhat preventable disease? Remember that none of these things exist in a vacuum either. So it's really unlikely that you just have insulin resistance because insulin affects other hormones as well. There is some evidence that estrogen dominance is linked to decreased insulin sensitivity. 
And I'm not going to get too into details here because you've had enough science, but estrogen dominance doesn't just mean that you have high estrogen. Estrogen and progesterone are the two main female sex hormones, and they need to exist in balance with each other. So if you have low estrogen, but lower progesterone, then you can still have estrogen dominance. So you don't need to just have high estrogen to have estrogen dominance. You can have low progesterone and also have estrogen dominance. There's also cortisol, which is the stress hormone. So cortisol prepares your body for action during a fight or flight or stress response, which causes energy to be moved out of storage and become readily available. So your body converts its glycogen stores into glucose. Under short-term stress, insulin and cortisol have opposite effects. So high levels of insulin cause your body to store energy in the form of glycogen and fat, and high levels of cortisol cause your body to convert its glycogen stores into glucose. In our modern society, non-physical stressors can increase cortisol. So things like relationship issues, problems with your kids, sleep deprivation, impending deadlines, none of these things, though, result in vigorous physical activity to lower your blood sugar, such as running away from a bear would. Because you aren't burning off the excess glucose that was released by the cortisol, your blood sugar can remain elevated for long periods of time, which can then trigger the release of insulin. Since insulin is one of the drivers of obesity, it would make sense that chronic stress, and thus chronically elevated cortisol, leads to obesity. This can be done artificially when a person is prescribed steroids for whatever reason. One of the major side effects of long-term steroid use is weight gain, among other things, because these medications are essentially artificial cortisol. It would make sense that the effect is similar. And as we've already discussed, elevated insulin levels lead to insulin resistance, which lead to metabolic syndrome. So you can see how this is just kind of an ugly cycle. The other thing to consider in this situation of elevated cortisol is that progesterone is one of the main components needed to make cortisol. So when you have chronically high levels of cortisol, you are using up all of your progesterone. And when you have low progesterone, you end up with estrogen dominance. And estrogen dominance makes it harder to lose weight, which really only perpetuates this cycle. There's also some evidence that estrogen deficiency, as may happen during perimenopause or menopause, can lead to de the development of insulin resistance because estrogen plays an important role in glucose metabolism and how sensitive your cells are to insulin. All right. Wow. Are you still listening? Sorry, that was so heavy. I promise it's going to get easier. So I already mentioned that prediabetes is the diagnosis that you get before you are diagnosed with diabetes. If you're going based on blood sugar, it's when your fasting blood sugar is between 110 and 125. So in a standard medical practice, anything under 99 for a fasting glucose is considered normal. But in reality, we'd really like it to be under 90. Also, remember that blood sugar is the last thing to increase in, your, in diabetes, which is why measuring insulin might be a better diagnostic tool. The other reason why blood sugar alone is not a great diagnostic tool is that your fasting blood sugar can actually increase if you're eating a lower carb diet. It's kind of the same thing that we we're talking about with hormones, but people who eat a low carb diet might become slightly insulin resistant over time because the body downregulates how much insulin you need. So you aren't eating as many carbs, which means that you don't need as much insulin, which means that your body will slowly decrease the amount of insulin it produces because it just doesn't need to make as much. So in this case, it's not a disease state, but it's still insulin resistance. This definitely doesn't apply to everyone, but also remember from the Paleo 101 episode that sometimes people are unintentionally eating low carb on a paleo diet. 
So this wouldn't be an issue necessarily if you had just started a paleo diet, but it could become one as time goes on. And it's just something to be aware of when you're having your labs done with your doctor or medical provider. I also want to make sure that you understand that just because somebody isn't overweight doesn't mean that they can't still have insulin resistance or metabolic syndrome. Remember of the five criteria for metabolic syndrome that you only need three. So just because someone is skinny or an athlete doesn't mean that this might not be an issue for them. I have seen plenty of tall, skinny, marathon running dudes with fasting blood sugars in the 120s and insanely high cholesterol. Skinny does not equal healthy, even though type 2 diabetes tends to be a big issue for those who are overweight. All right, so now the $100,000 question is, what do we do about all this? There is a growing body of evidence to support the use of the paleo diet in treating metabolic syndrome, insulin resistance, and diabetes. One study compared the paleo diet with the diet recommended by the American Diabetes Association in people who had type 2 diabetes. The study was short, it was only 14 days, and both groups showed improvements in weight and insulin sensitivity, but only the paleo group showed improvements in their fasting blood sugar and cholesterol levels. A study done with people who already had metabolic syndrome showed that the paleo diet lowered blood pressure, cholesterol, and triglycerides again after only 14 days. And they lowered them more than the diet recommended by the Dutch Health Council for those who have metabolic syndrome. The shocking part for me with these studies was not that it improved the disease markers, but that it happened in as little as 14 days. I think that that really speaks to the power of paleo. Other than eating a paleo diet, and you knew that was going to be the first thing I said, right? What else can you do to manage insulin resistance and metabolic syndrome? I mean, the other big thing is lifestyle factors. So lack of exercise, diet in high refined carbohydrates, and low in fiber are the main culprits when it comes to type 2 diabetes. In fact, at least 92% of all cases of type 2 diabetes are related to one of those things. That means that 92% of type 2 diabetes cases are also preventable, and eating a paleo diet takes care of over half of those factors. Just add in a little bit of exercise and you can prevent almost every single case of diabetes in the US. Exercise doesn't have to be vigorous or long. At least 30 minutes, five times per week has multiple benefits, including reducing overall inflammation in addition to helping maintain a normal blood sugar. I have a friend who's a type 2 diabetic, and he controls his diabetes mostly with diet. And I don't recommend this approach, but if he eats anything that's higher in carbohydrates, he just rides his bike until his blood sugar gets to an appropriate level. Again, I don't recommend this approach, but it really works for him. He knows how far, how long he needs to bike under certain circumstances, and then he gets to have the occasional indulgence without worrying that his blood sugar is going to go crazy. He also rides his bike everywhere, so that's helpful, but I think that it just speaks to the importance of exercise. Because of the role of cortisol in all this, um, stress management is also super important. There are also a number of supplements that have shown to have a beneficial effect on uh, blood sugar metabolism and insulin sensitivity. As always, please consult your healthcare provider before starting any supplements. And these recommendations are meant to go along with necessary dietary changes because you can't supplement your way out of something without making changes elsewhere. Vitamin B6 deficiency is associated with a decrease in many of the enzymes that are needed to make glucose from non-carb sources. So B6 can be beneficial in managing your blood sugar. Folic acid has also been shown to protect against some of the damage that it can occur to blood vessels in those with metabolic syndrome and actually might o improve overall metabolic profiles. 
there is an inverse relationship between vitamin B12 and BMI. And in patients who have metabolic syndrome, folate and vitamin B12 actually decreases insulin resistance. So it increases your cell's sensitivity to insulin. People with metabolic syndrome have also been shown to have low levels of vitamin C, and vitamin C deficiency is associated with weight loss resistance. Vitamin D has been shown to reduce the likelihood of developing metabolic syndrome. In a study of young adults, there was an inverse relationship between blood glucose, insulin resistance, and vitamin D. So more vitamin D meant lower blood glucose and better insulin sensitivity. Magnesium also plays a critical role in regulation of the action of insulin and the uptake of glucose by the cells. So higher magnesium intake is associated with increased insulin sensitivity and a decreased risk of metabolic syndrome. And Americans are notoriously deficient in magnesium in general. So even if you aren't really at risk for metabolic syndrome, you might consider some additional magnesium. Some other supplements that could be helpful are alpha-lipoic acid, which is a very powerful antioxidant, coenzyme Q10, which is important in the conversion of carbohydrates into energy, and acetyl-L-carnitine, which is an amino acid that plays an important role in the metabolism of energy. All right, guys, if you're still listening, congrats, you made it. If I have left you with more questions than answers, I would love it if you would send me an email or submit a question online. You can submit questions on my website, marthaflorence.com. Um, but I'd love to clarify anything for you because I didn't want to confuse you. I wanted to enlighten you. So if you're enjoying this show, I would love it if you would head over to iTunes and leave a review. Otherwise, I will see you next week. 